Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest or you're new here or you call the Oaks Church home, we're so thankful that you are worshiping with us this morning. Um, it's, it's great to see so many new faces. Fall kickoff is one of the weeks that uh, we intentionally try to be as hospitable as we can and uh, to say that there's a place for you each and every week here uh, in our homes through missional community groups because we know that life is difficult when lived alone and God has designed us um, to not only know him but to know one another. I know that some of you probably uh, you were invited by a coworker. Maybe they said, hey, I'll pick you up, you know, around uh, 9.30 on Sunday morning. Well, you thought you were going to brunch and then you ended up passing Bob Evans and you end up at a community rec center and you're thinking, what is going on? Well, hey, we've got coffee and uh, yeah, it's not Bob Evans. But we're thankful that you're here. We're thankful that um, we get to see you um, for some of you, the, the second time, third time, um, we're grateful for just each and every person that has uh, worked really hard to make this day possible. I'm really thankful for our staff team, our volunteers, uh, those of you who called the Oaks Church home who, who worked to, to make everything happen uh, today. And we're really excited that we get to celebrate the baptism of seven of our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to see that God is still changing lives, uh, making people live that were once dead in sin. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 8. Now, in the time that we have together today, we're going to look at six comforts from the entire chapter of Romans 8. And you're thinking, can we cover 39 verses in one sermon at the Oaks? Well, we should all know by 3 p.m., right? Uh, based upon my notes, I, I promise I'm, I'm going to have you out before Bengals kick off. Now, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do really kind of a quick fly through of Romans 8. And then for the next six weeks, we're going to return to each of these comforts, each of these sections of Romans 8, because there's going to be so much here that we can't fully digest it. And so this will kind of be just kind of an overview uh, where we go fast through this text before we walk slowly through this same text for the next six weeks. I think by the end of our time together, you will know, know why this chapter of my Bible is so worn, uh, why, why this page in my Bible looks so different. Now, these are verses that I've read again and again, perhaps verses that you've clung to in your faith. You see, in Romans 8, we will find that there are these six comforts that act as weighty truths to stabilize our life whenever things seem to be unraveling or out of control. These are six doctrines, six truths, six comforts that we hold dear in the Christian life. This past summer, I was in Florida, and we were visiting some family there. That's where I grew up. And uh, my brother and sister, they have a deep-sea fishing boat. And so they invited us to go out one day. And it was a beautiful day weather-wise, but it was also a really windy day. And so, you know, we're dropping the boat into the water, heading out into the open water, and see the waves are huge, you know, chest high. And, and you know, the wind is coming on all sides. And being from Florida... I, I knew what was going to happen. I, I knew that it wouldn't be long until, you know, our legs were wobbly and we weren't feeling so good. My two and five-year-old were with us, and I was thinking, all right, at some point, their faces are going to turn green, and there's going to be, you know, this unwelcome reminder of what they had for breakfast. And so I'm just like, oh, no. And yet this strange thing was happening. We were in the middle of this, this you know, gulf where waves were high, and yet our boat was unmoved. 
And so I asked my brother-in-law, I said, why is this the case? The waves are high. I'm looking at the boats around us, even bigger boats than the one that we are sitting in. And yet we're not pitched to one side or the other. Whenever waves crash against the bow, we are unmoved. And he said, well, our boat is equipped with something that's called a sea keeper. Now, some of you might know what this is. I'd never heard of this before, uh, but it's this device that's mounted in the hull of the boat right in the center at the very bottom. And it, it weighs half a ton, a thousand pound steel disc. And it spins, it spins at speeds of up to 500 miles an hour. And what it does is it kind of sends this stabilizing uh, presence through the entire boat so that no matter what is going on around it, this spinning half ton disc weights it down into the water so that it is unmoved. You see the solution to the stability was not just the absence of the waves crashing around the boat. It wasn't that we were in calm water. No, it was that there was something underneath the surface that weighed us down and kept us stable. Romans 8 is like that for the Christian. Romans 8, these six comforts that we will look at is somewhat like that device in the Christian's soul. That they are these weighty truths of your adoption and knowing God as Father, these weighty truths that God's steadfast love is greater than your sin and failure, these weighty truths that the Holy Spirit now indwells the life of the believer so that whenever waves crash and winds come, you are unmoved. You see, I, I think that people perhaps come in to uh, a, a Sunday morning like this in a couple different places. Some of you are wondering if God is really gracious, if God is gracious enough. Perhaps you find yourself tangled up in sin again. And what I say in general, you know, in specific terms, you feel unwanted, unwelcomed into the presence of God. And you're wondering, could God really want a relationship with someone like me? And in Romans 8, you're going to see that the answer is a resounding yes. Others of you, you feel like you're stuck in a spiritual rut. To be honest, if someone was to ask you right now, what do you feel like God's teaching you? You would just say, I have, I have no idea. I honestly don't know if I feel like I've heard the voice of God. And I pray that Romans 8 acts kind of like spiritual jumper cables for your soul to reignite the understanding that God is a God who is gracious, who loves, and that would shake you out of your spiritual rut. Some of you think that God is currently annoyed with you or distant, perhaps like God is reluctant to hear your prayers. And Romans 8 shows us just the opposite. Some of you come in hurting. You come in with the fresh wounds of living in a world that has fallen and broken by sin. And I hope that Romans 8 offers you both rest and restoration in the presence of God. You see, what we need is not to be removed from difficulty, but to be unmoved in the midst of it because our trust is in the Lord. I also say this knowing that some of you come in and you don't really know God. You don't have a personal relationship with God. Maybe you grew up religious or you're familiar with the things of God, but you'd say you don't, you're not walking with him. You don't know what it's like to walk in obedience to him, to know him and to be known by him. And my prayer is that Romans 8 would lower some of those defenses, welcome you into a relationship with God. So whether for the first time or as a well-worn reminder, we need the message of Romans 8 because it declares to us that God forgives our sins, 
welcomes us into his family and gives us a future hope. Romans 8 shows to us that God forgives our sins, welcomes us into his family, and gives us a future hope. Now, if you're new to the letter of Romans, you should know that it was written by a guy named Paul. He was an ordinary guy saved by the extraordinary grace of God, and he wrote this letter to a church in Rome that he had never met before about 2,000 years ago. Uh, For that reason, because he's explaining the gospel message to this church that was unfamiliar with some of his teaching, it's one of the most treasured letters in the New Testament because it kind of covers the whole scope of the foundations of our faith. Romans 8 is kind of like the diamond in the ring of the book of Romans because it lays out these great truths. It begins with the statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and it ends with the truth that there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Literally every verse of the book of Romans is almost like holding a kaleidoscope up and just kind of turning the lens on the front, helping you see a different aspect of the glory of God in Scripture. And so here we are going to look at these verses, and you'll see why this has been a comfort to to so many Christians throughout the ages. As we look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 39, you're going to see six comforts for every Christian. Now, I think it's important for me to say that these comforts are for a Christian, for the person who knows God. So while they don't apply to everyone, they are available to anyone. These, these are comforts for the person who can say, I know God. And in that way, if you have a relationship with God, I want these to be a great encouragement to you. And at the same time, if you don't yet know Christ, if you don't yet know God, I want you to see these as an invitation for comforts that you can claim. These might not apply to you right now in this moment, but they are available to you if you would call upon the name of Christ. So the first comfort that we see in this passage is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Comfort one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Let me show it to you from the text. If you remember last week, we looked at chapter seven and Paul ends Romans chapter 7 saying, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? He says, thanks be to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8.1 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In in these first eight verses here, I want you to see this comfort, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, what I want you to see uh, as you look at verse 1 is that Paul gives us a time reference, doesn't he? He says, there is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does that tell us? That this acquittal of condemnation, this freedom that is pronounced, this guilt that is removed is a new development. And it could only take place through whom? Through Christ Jesus. You see, what does it mean to be condemned? What happens whenever a criminal is condemned? They're charged of breaking some crime. They enter a courtroom. The evidence is presented and it is stacked against their favor. Witnesses take the stand and attest to the fact that they have broken the laws that they were accused of. The jury weighs in, the judge gives a sentence and they are condemned. Well, what we see throughout scripture is that God is a holy God. And in his goodness, he has given us laws to obey, to lead us, to help us to know him. And yet we have broken those laws. We see that in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. What laws have been broken? Well, I mean, consider the 10 commandments, lying, coveting, wanting what other people have that you don't have, using the Lord's name in vain, Maybe, maybe something like stealing or uh, adultery, even in your mind, lusting after someone that's not your spouse. We all come before God and we would say, I am guilty. And scripture says that makes us deserving of condemnation, a death that is both, both physical, gradual, over time, and also spiritual, that we're separated from God. You see, the weight of our condemnation hangs heavy on our soul and gives us an eternal sentence of death. But what if one could step in? What if one could take the fall in your place? Imagine being a criminal on death row, and yet whenever it is the day that you will fulfill your sentence, someone steps in and says, I will go in their place. You would say, that's too good to be true. And what Romans 8 has just stated is that that swap of fates is a reality for the Christian. Because what do we read? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How? A good judge can't let a guilty person go free. That would mean that they didn't have good character. There, there would need to be someone to take that penalty upon themselves. Someone else would have to be condemned. There would have to be a, a, a new righteousness, a new rightness applied to that person who was once guilty that they had not earned themselves, that they would go free. And if that is beginning to make sense, then you understand the heart of the gospel message that Christ as our substitute did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because verses three through four say this, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You could not keep all of God's commands. What did God do? It says that he did what, he, what we could not do by sending his own son, verse three, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in Christ on the cross, taking our penalty as our substitute in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who is it that fulfilled the righteous requirement of God's law? It is Christ. It says that the righteous requirement was fulfilled in us, but not by us. You see, on the cross, this great exchange took place, that our sin, the penalty that we deserved, was placed upon the shoulders of Christ. 
and he bore it in full. And then his righteousness, his complete obedience that, that he lived out whenever he took on flesh and lived on the earth, obeying every single command of God, that, that righteousness was then placed upon all who believe so that God could both declare your penalty, your punishment, completely placed upon his son. And so that the righteousness that God requires could be completely placed upon you. Let's imagine for a moment that you're taking a class back in college for some of you that aren't there right now, or maybe uh, a class that some of you are in, and it's pass fail. Okay, so this class is a really big deal, it's pass fail. And not only uh, does this determine your GPA for the semester, but this class determines whether you graduate or not. All right, there's a lot riding on this exam that you have for this class. It's finals time, all right? And so you, you go into class, you've studied a little bit, but not as much as you should have. Uh, the professor lays the exam in front of you and you get to, to question one and you're like, oh no, I don't recognize. Not only this question, I don't recognize these words. I can't do this. Some of you are like, you are describing my last semester, which is why I'm in, you know, uh, biology for round two. All right, so, so you get this test in front of you. And you're like, I don't know. And you go to question two, and you're just like, I, I have no hope for passing this test whatsoever. And so you just start Christmas treeing. You try really hard. Um, there's an essay question, and you're like, you know, I'm like, you're like, I'll give it my best shot. And you're just making stuff up. All right, then you, you go to turn in your paper, at the front desk, and yet there's a person that you know is just a straight-A student. They, they've already you know, gone through the test, double-checked it. They are for sure that every single answer on their test is correct. And right before your paper hits the desk, they tap you on the shoulder, and you turn around. And what you see is that on the top of their exam, your name is written. And then they take your test out of your hands, and they erase your name, and they write their name on your exam. They take them both, they put them in the middle of the stack and walk away. And you say, well, that's, I mean, this is so undeserved. This is, this is unthinkable that someone would take the fall for my terrible test score. There's no way that this person is going to pass this test, pass this class, or graduate with what I just turned in. And you also know that you are going to receive the credit for something that you didn't even come close to deserving. That's what Paul has just described in Romans chapter eight, verses one through eight. That Christ as your substitute took the penalty that you deserved and gave upon you a righteousness that you could have never earned so that you would come before God the Father and have life and peace with him. Oh, Christian, be comforted. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And some of you are sitting here thinking, then why do I so often feel condemned? I think it's because we can recite this truth and, and really not believe it within our hearts. I think sometimes we might say, okay, my, my worth is completely based upon Christ. My standing is completely based upon the work of Christ. And yet we think that God actually relates to us on the basis of how good we're doing with our Bible reading plan or if we're checking those you know, man-made boxes of our own self-righteousness or how well we are doing dealing with our battle against sin. But what has this just told you? That your relationship with God is completely based upon what Christ has done, not what you are currently doing. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel message. Religion says do, 
and then maybe you will be accepted. Whereas this relationship with God says, look at what Christ has done, therefore believe in him and you are accepted. That is a comforting reality for every person who calls upon the name of Christ. The second comfort that we see in this passage is that God is with you to work within you. We're going to unpack this in a minute. God is with you to work within you. So, so sure, you're justified, you're made right with God, but now what does the Christian life look like? How do you go and live this out in obedience? Well, three times we're going to see a phrase in verses 9 through 11 that says, now the Holy Spirit dwells within you. The, the whole Trinity is at work here in your salvation and your relationship with God, that God the Father has planned it, that Christ has accomplished it, and now the Holy Spirit applies it to your life. Look at verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see the very end of verse eight tells us that those who are in the flesh, those who don't have the Holy Spirit, can't submit to God's laws, can't be obedient to God. So we're left wondering, okay, how can I change? How can I live? And then Paul immediately answers that question and he says, God is at work within you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. This is amazing, isn't it? To think about the fact that God has placed his spirit within you. We're going to talk a lot more about what it means uh, to be filled with the Spirit, what it means to be a church that is led by the Spirit on the Sunday of the 25th, but I want to make two quick observations here. We see that the Holy Spirit is given to every believer. This isn't just kind of something that, you know, is given to the varsity level Christians or, you know, the, the Christians that are really, really good. No, every single Christian receives the Holy Spirit. Not only that, he gives life. Paul says he gives life to your mortal bodies. In fact, he says, look, look at the fact that the same Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ from the dead now lives in you. He says, are you struggling to obey? Does that current battle with sin seem impossible uh, to, ever, to ever run from, to ever pursue obedience? Look at the empty tomb and see the fact that God is able to work in and through you to change. Now, because this is true, because the Holy Spirit now dwells within you, now I want you to understand the futility of trying to live the Christian life in your own self-effort. Imagine that someone you know is just really generous, and so, you know, one day you pull up into your driveway and you see a brand new Ferrari parked there. And you're like, wow, this is great, you know? And my birthday is actually not until next month, but I'll take it now. And so you're like, what is this? Well, somebody gives you a a Ferrari, and yet you're so, you're so determined to, you know, take this car and, and power it in your own self-effort that you decide to cut a giant hole in the floorboard. And then instead of, you know, turning the key in into the ignition and taking that thing on for a drive, you, you begin to try to power it with your feet through the floorboard, like Fred Flintstone style. Now, I know this is the most ridiculous image you have in your head right now, but I promise we're going somewhere with this. 
And so you're, you're pedaling, trying to pedal out of the driveway and you can't really get this thing going. Maybe you're up to five miles an hour max and you're just thinking, okay, this is impossible. Now, as, as silly as that is, how many people live out the Christian life in the exact same way? You have 600 horsepower under the hood and yet you completely neglect it for your own self-effort. Maybe you find yourself and, and you're overestimating your own ability to change. And you're saying, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to you know, tell this person and that I'm never going to do that sin again because this is my plan and this is what I'm doing. Instead of falling on your knees and praying and asking the Holy Spirit within you to help you change. As Christians, we are both led by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus told his disciples that it would be better for you if I went back to heaven and gave you the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than the Son of God beside you. And that's hard to comprehend. And the Spirit-filled life now overflows with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all yours because you know Christ. This truth changes who you are in the eyes of God, which is what we see in the third comfort, that God is your Father, and you are a part of his family. If you know Christ, then God is your father and you are a part of his family. We see that in verses 12 through 17. Paul says, so then, brothers, part of this family, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What do you find in these verses? that you now relate to God as father and you are a part of his family. I think people are confused oftentimes at how they should relate to God. Is God a coach giving you good advice? Is he a boss giving you assignments to carry out? Well, verses 12 through 17 here just declared that God is father. In verse 15, we're told that the Holy Spirit has adopted us into this family as sons of God. Now, don't get hung up on that uh, because Paul is speaking to a Roman audience. And so in, in Roman, for Romans in the first century, uh, whenever a son was adopted into the family, uh, not only would they gain sonship, but they would also gain all the inheritance. And so if you're sitting here and you're a lady and you're like, I don't want to be called a sons of God, well, I feel kind of weird about being the bride of Christ, and so here we are, all right? This is, this is what we see. And so there is a greater truth being communicated here, that, that once you were dead in your sins, Ephesians 2 calls you an enemy of God. You were once an orphan with no home, and yet God the Father in his grace and mercy transferred you out of a kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, not only cleaned you up, but gave you a place in his home and in his family. Because this is the truth of the gospel that you have now been adopted. And if, if you know God as father, then that means that you now have 
the, the ability to be, to be treated like a child of God. On July 9th, 2019, I became an older brother to two younger sisters that I did not grow up with. Uh, I, grew up, I grew up as the youngest child in my family, and then on July 9th, uh, a couple years back, Kaya and Kinley became my sisters, my adopted sisters. And so they were welcomed into our family. They received our last name. They now have the same parents as me. They have now all of the rights that I have as the firstborn son. And we are family. That's what God invites you into. That's what we just read here in verses 12 through 17. Do you know God as Father? If so, do you relate to those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as your family? Maybe this is a good time to remind you that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. It's a good time to remind each and every one of us that we need one another, that God has created us to be interdependent. Uh, if you call the Oaks Church home, my plea with you is that you would not just consider life in a church to be what happens on a Sunday morning, but that all of the one another's in scripture are lived out far beyond these walls. We need one another. This is a good place to start. The fourth comfort I want you to see in this passage is that you can have hope in your suffering. You can have hope in your suffering. Verses 18 through 25 say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons of the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, I think sometimes the Christian life can be confusing for people because they think that simply being a Christian will remove all temptation that there will be no more obstacles, that life will be easy if you know Jesus. And yet, what Paul has just told us is that that is not the case. A freedom from all your problems is not promised here, but there is a promise that God makes through this passage. It gets better. He says this present suffering is not worth being compared to the future glory that will one day be revealed. And that's good news for us in this room because we know present suffering well. For some of you, present suffering has faces that you can picture right now. People that you love that are surrounded by beeping machines in a hospital room. For you, present suffering might be a, a chronic illness, a, a struggle with sin, past regrets, a difficult relationship, you're thinking, yes, my present suffering is very present. And what does Paul say here? That one day when Christ returns, the sufferings of this present age will not be able to compare to the glory of God that you will experience firsthand. Not only that, but all creation will be restored. 
Now, as Hunter said, this day is a reminder of a tragedy that took place 21 years ago. We look around the world and see the effects of sin. Why does evil exist? Why is there so much suffering? And what we see is that sin has marred and fractured a world that God created good. It's the reason that people in third world countries die from something as simple as lack of water. It's the reason that children created in the image of God are, are discarded as nothing. It's the reason that elementary schools aren't safe or hometowns are ripped apart by tornadoes. Is there any hope that all of the effects of this curse will one day be reversed? Romans 8 says, yes. He says, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The entire creation is groaning for the cosmic redemption that God will one day work through Christ who sits on his throne in the book of Revelation looking into the corridors of the future who says, behold, I am making all things new. That this suffering will one day be a past and distant memory. Maybe you're wondering, well, what about the pain that I presently feel? I want you to see this fifth comfort that God has a purpose in your pain. Sometimes you can wonder, does all of this make sense? What I'm going through? So, so unforeseen. One phone call can completely change your day, and you're sitting there wondering, is there any purpose in my pain? Verses 26 through 30 show us that there is. We read, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever been on your knees crying out to God and you can't even find words in the English dictionary to express how you feel? Paul says, yeah, I know that. God does too. And the Holy Spirit within you is able to cry out for you whenever you don't even know what to say. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there is so much here. We see this beautiful golden chain of salvation, as it's called, and we're not going to get to it today. But here's what we do see. That Romans 8.28 shows that God has great purpose in your pain. Because Romans 8.28 is true, for, no, for those who love God, all things together work for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because that is true, regardless of what you are facing in your life, you are able to wonder how God is working something out for your good, but you never have to wonder if God is working something out for your good. Because God makes this promise and he keeps it. You might not fully comprehend how something is good until you're in heaven one day. And this verse might also bring you to the realization that sometimes your definition of what is good is different from God's definition. But you can always trust that God is sovereignly ordaining things for your good. 
In fact, one of the ways that we see this is in our own salvation. Sometimes God uses suffering as a megaphone that we would hear his voice. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, the wife of a missionary who was murdered on the mission field, said, Christian, your suffering is never for nothing. God is working all things out for good, and he will never fail that promise. We find one final comfort in verses 31 through 39, that nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What has Romans 8 just declared to the Christian? That there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There is not a vow that you can break, a sin that you can commit, or a promise that you would fail to deliver on that would cause you to lose the love of God. Isn't this so different from the human relationships that we experience? Isn't that why we try to hide our faults from others? Because we think, if they truly knew who I am, there's no way that they would like me, let alone love me. And the gospel declares that God knows how bad you are, even worse than you do. And as Kathleen read earlier, that it was while we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinners against him, that he sent Christ to show the magnitude and depth and breadth of his love toward us. You see, many charges come against the Christian, and yet we are not condemned. That's why Paul says, who can present a charge against us? Satan, the accuser, often will. He say, you can't have a relationship with God. Look at these sins that you've committed. Look at how you still struggle. This is why I love the words of Martin Luther, the theologian, whenever he instructs the church in this way. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. You see, the accusations of Satan and the depth of our sin only serve to show the magnitude and depth of God's grace toward those who constantly fall short. So if you are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. If you're wondering, can I be separated from God's love, hear these words. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you, us, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, you will sooner separate light from the sun than God's love from you. You will sooner separate heat from fire. You will not lose the love of God. And if that's true, then why do we so often find that hard to believe? I think it's because we often try to measure God's love upon our current circumstances. 
So whenever money is tight or the kids are sick or we fail an exam or things are hard, we, we question God's love. And whenever things are easy, well, thinking that God's love is there for us is easy as well. But God has given us the greatest picture of his love, the greatest display of his love through the cross. And so if you want to know if God truly loves you, look not to your current circumstances, but look at what he did for you on the cross in Christ's death and resurrection to bring you into his family and to secure your eternity. What a great comfort we have in the fact that we cannot be separated from the love of God. So how do you respond to a message like this? I think you can have at least one of three responses. Some of you, I believe, have been comforted for commitment. So you've received these comforts and, and you need to respond by committing your life to Christ. Uh, by saying, I, I understand I was created to know God. Uh, I think that, uh, that I've just been walking far from God. And in this moment, you'd say, I believe that Christ died for my sins, that he switched our exams. He took the, the fall that I deserve and the penalty of sin on my behalf and gave me a righteousness that I did not deserve. You see, these truths don't apply to everyone, but they are available to anyone. If that's your heart's desire, would you express that to God? Tell the friend that you came with. If you're a Christian, be reminded of this great truth. We're going to celebrate with seven of our brothers and sisters today that will display what God has done in their lives, not as a way to be saved, but as a symbol of the way that God has saved them that they were once dead in their sin. And as they go under the water, it is a picture of, of the death that their old life deserved. And as they're raised up, they're saying, I'm now united with Christ in his resurrection to live. For others of you, you've been comforted for community. Maybe it's the realization that if God is a father, then I need brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's committing to a church family like this one or one near you if if this isn't close to you or, or you don't live here, or you're just a guest this Sunday, it's, it's the understanding that you can't live the Christian life alone. Yes, your salvation is personal, but it is not individual. And you need other people around you. Third, we are comforted for a commission. See, before Jesus ascended back to the throne, he gave us this command that we would go and make disciples, that as those who have received this comfort, this great good news, that we would share it with the world around us. Uh, we will not stop until the entire city of Cincinnati has heard this good news, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we revel in the fact, we repeat these good words and hold on to this truth that God forgives our sins, welcomes us into his family, and gives us a future hope. Let's pray.